Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown show. A show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Braden Asher Michoic. Braden has roots in both Chicago, Illinois, and Ferndale, Michigan. He is co-founder, executive director of Transcend the Binary, an organization that seeks to empower the transgender and gender nonconforming community through access to affirming care, resources, research, and education. He's also been a lead photographer in the Rogue Studio Collective, a collective that merged talents of photographers, designers, and printmaking expertise in Detroit and Chicago. Braden graduated from Michigan State University with a degree from James Madison College. He began studying film photography in 2014 and transitioned to the digital fine photography platform. In June 2018, Transcend the Binary debuted its Finding Our Strengths survey results in the form of an art gallery which included banners highlighting key findings as well as interactive portions for onlookers to better understand a day in the life of a member of a transgender and gender nonconforming community. The exhibit highlighted the community's worry about discrimination invading their daily life, but also highlighted their ability to be resilient. A trans man, Braden says, we are so proud of who we are and how far we've come, but we know much more needs to be done to ensure our community is healthy, not just physically, but mentally and socially as well. Our community deserves it. Plants and the binary staff are available for those seeking services, such as hormone counseling, medical referrals, youth and family support, fitness and nutrition counseling, and more all of which are provided free of charge. Braden dedicates his service to Transcend the Binary in honor of organization's co-founder, Darnell Jones, saying, I made the promise to Darnell and my community to make sure that Transcend continues to grow from our resources, program quality, research, and understanding of our community. Braden, Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. It's, uh, it's an honor and privilege to be a part of your show. Well, I'm glad to have you. I'm telling you, you know, we first met at that exhibit uh, back in June that was at Affirmations. And um, besides, there was so much data, but the way it was presented visually and some of the visual images in the photography, I mean, there were people 
who are my friends and family, and I looked at them. I mean, I know one couple, uh, Hannah and and Diane, Mm -hmm. I saw them, and I looked at that picture, and the Mm -hmm. love I know they have for each other, I saw. I mean, it just sort of came through there. That was just like an amazing exhibit and an amazing way to share information. Thank you. So, yeah. So, um, so it looks like how long were you always involved, interested in photography? Were you that kid with the, you know, always want to, hey, everybody get together, I want to take the picture? Or, I mean, did that develop <laughs> later on in life? It, I mean, I always had it in the back of my mind. It's something that I wanted to do, but the thing with photography is that there's a kind of high entry um, because the equipment can be costly. So that's where I kind of started in film, and it was just kind of, you know, a friend of mine um, who's actually a roommate of mine um, back in oh, probably like 2012, 2011, um, you know, we just started kind of messing around with film cameras. And uh, I'd be kind of systematic with it where I would um, take – I basically had read a little bit about – light and how that works and like apertures and I would try to kind of put it together in a way that makes sense but I would systematically go through an entire roll taking an image of taking the same picture multiple times of the same mm-hmm. subject and uh, then I'd print the roll and I'd compare it and uh, try to learn and that's a that's a slower process so I worked on that and then um, got into digital photography um, and I really like you know working with people and landscape photography is really nice too but um, yeah I'm, I'm it's always been an interest. It's always been something I was drawn to. I'd be walking around and being like, I'd love to take a picture of that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's something that I've pursued, I would say, later. Now, did you find being part of a collective, did that like further your education in photography in a way that you wouldn't have gotten in a traditional class? 100%. Um, for the record, I've never taken an official class. Uh, on photography. Mm-hmm. So uh, I actually credit to one of my mentors, and I actually had lived next door to him, and uh, we would just go to a bunch of actually local punk shows. And uh, we, he kind of threw me in kind of the hardest environments to, to, to photograph in, and uh, that mm-hmm. was the, probably the fastest way to really learn and have, you know, someone who can, like, look over your work and kind of push you to be harder, or, you know, push you further in your skills and offer that, you know, critique um, was really beneficial. So, you know, I know that you, you've spent time in Chicago, and I know that, mm-hmm. and, and now you're in Ferndale. Mm-hmm. You know, artistically, as far as, has it taken your photography in a different direction when you're here in Ferndale? Well, I would say that I'm very connected with just the community here in Ferndale and Metro Detroit. So when I come back and I'm in, you know, the, the Detroit area, Ferndale area, um, you know, my focus is, is a lot of the times working with people. And that's something that I really enjoy doing. Um, in Chicago, it's obviously a large, fast-paced city. Um, and that has just been more like architectural focus, landscape focused. Um, but here in, in this area, you know, there's a huge people-human element to it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know what you mean because I go back and forth between the two. And I know that often I find that when I'm in Chicago, it sort of like feeds that artist part. But here mm-hmm. in Detroit, it's about community, particularly mm-hmm. being a member of 
the gender nonconforming, the queer, LGBTQ, use whatever, you know, initials you want to do. It seems like here I feel more a part of the community, even though mm-hmm. there would be some people who would say in Chicago, well, you know, there's, there's such a huge community, but it's not the same. Do you find a, a greater connection here? 100%. I think some of that might be due to the fact that, you know, the folks in, that I met along my, my journey in, in transitioning, you know, my life really gained a lot of traction in the Ferndale area. And, you know, it could be the bonds that you build going through that with folks. Um, and it could also be just something about this area. You know, I think it's, it's large enough, but it's, it's also small enough that you can be really um, strongly interconnected with a lot of folks. Um, and I wasn't able to really get that in Chicago. Um, mm. Needless to say, though, a lot of my time, my spare time is devoted to um, Transcend and then photography, so um, I might not have been able to give it a fair shake in the Chicago area. But, yeah, this area is definitely where my home and my heart is. Well, you know, and I, I understand it, too, because, like, I have trans family and um, mm-hmm. all over. But I would say the greatest concentration of, I mean, I have uh, friends who, who are from Chicago and have moved on. I have friends in Texas. I have friends in D.C. But those people, and I would consider many of them fa- friends, but the people who I consider my family are right here. You know, it's just sort of like something about that community and being a part of and doing and, you know, and meeting and knowing people and the fact that they just sort of like take you right in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, would, I would echo, I think you, you, you said it more articulately than I could. Um, I, I definitely agree. I think that, you know, a lot of it too for me comes to the, the passion projects that I've had the privilege of working on very talented teams. The exhibit that you mentioned earlier, um, you know, that was a, a very long um, process from, you know, just starting the research with actually my mentor within Transcend and founder, um, Darnell Jones, where that started and where that evolved and grew to. I mean, that was a, we started writing that survey in 2015. And just okay. the hundreds of people that we connected with and worked with along that process, it was a really amazingly enriching experience. Um, and that just shows you like kind of like the grit that's in this area. Like that, that survey itself was not actually funded, which is really um, unusual. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And it was, you know, something that was built by the community, which is also very unusual. You'll see a lot of times like research that's community participatory, which gets input from the community. But, you know, we were the authors. We saw a need and we tackled it. And I guess the point that I'm making is, in this area, I feel that we're very action-based. We see a problem, we dive in, and we try to solve it, and we try to make it better. And I think that there's a lot of motivation in this area and a lot of passion in this area. And the relationships I've built in sharing these objectives and working on these you know, movement projects have been really an uh, enriching aspect of my life. Now, I'm going to tell you, and, and if you could share, I mean, Darnell Jones is like, it's, he holds a place and honor. I mean, I know that um, I've talked with um, people from GNA, and with, particularly Michelle Fox Phillips, and she talks yeah. about Darnell Jones. 
during the exhibit, his daughter was here. Mm-hmm. What was it about Darnell Jones that touched you, and why is he still held in such high revere in the community? <laughs> oh, wow. That's, uh, there's, a, there's a couple different angles that I could take to answering that. Um, what he meant to me, I mean, he was, uh, he was not only a mentor, but there's, just, there's so many different ways to talk about that. Darnell Jones was an incredible man. I guess we'll start there. Um, uh-huh. He had this effect. Um, I remember at the very beginning of working on our survey, we were getting um, Nancy Lewis, who's a pharmacist on our team, integrated with the community. And I remember when she looked across at him and was like, what is the Darnell effect? Like, how do you... <laughs> How do you do what you do? How are you? I mean, let's be real. Darnell was considered an honorary member of our community. Uh, mm-hmm. He was brought in. He, he was elected board president of GNA. Um, and that's something that, in all honesty, he, he was very mindful of the space that he takes up. So he did that and took that position because the, the team felt that that was necessary. Um, but for him, he always led from the back. And he would talk a lot about servant leadership, which means it's, it's not about um, – well, one of my team members actually kind of put this really articulately. Um, Jack, who's one of our client advocates, he said it's about having an impact without being the impact. And that is like a code from Darnell's book. And I think that he had a lot of humility. He was really good at meeting people where he, they're at, um, he was really good at empowering people. Um, he led through the development of others. Um, he was kind. He was compassionate. Um, he understood through his own lived experience the importance of, of having, having allies and what they should look like. And I think that he was, I mean, ally is a word that gets thrown around, thrown around a lot. And I believe that Darnell went beyond that. He was the verb. He was the action. It was his approach. Mm. And he looked at the community. This is also relevant because he was a pharmacist, right? And I'm sure if, if people who are listening didn't know Darnell, they might be thinking about how I'm describing him, that he was a social worker <laughs> because he kind of has that men- mentality just kind of naturally that's who he was as a person and that's the dignity that he provided to everyone in this strengths-based perspective. But he was a pharmacist. Within his quote-unquote expertise, he taught me that the way to work with the community is to recognize their own expertise, and that's really powerful, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that has been become the core fabric of Transcend, and why he's still a huge part of my team's present is because, as we've reflected on our experiences with him and all of the talks and all of the philosophical conversations we had about, you know, patient-centered care and why that's important and what that means and how you work with the community and, and not taking up space, all of those things, you can kind of deduce it to these core principles that we run our organization by. And those are gifts of how he taught us. He taught us as an ally what we should expect from allies. And mm. I think that's really powerful. Um, but that's all just the lessons you learn from how he embodies himself, how he worked with people. Um, we haven't even gotten Michelle to talk about the impact. Um, mm-hmm. He was the catalyst for change in so many people's lives. Um, we know in our community there's a lot of internal stressors. 
and external stressors, and a lot of it comes to like a society-driven aspect of family and key attachment figures and, you know, uncertainty about what information they can trust. And he would help people find their own traction at their own pace, working through what they needed to work through, and he saw them claim their lives. And he touched hundreds of people in that way. And it's relevant, too, to say now we have a lot of visibility, but he was doing this back in 2012. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, was a, it was a different landscape then. Um, getting information that you could trust was a different landscape. Getting doctors who would actually be okay with doing informed consent was a different landscape. The uh, World Professional Association of Transgender Health, their guidelines was a very different landscape. Um, and that's where it was really powerful. I mean, going back to the whole, he looked at our clients and our community as the expert of themselves, of their identity, mm-hmm. of their needs, and that's very social work-minded. And that was at the time not really the view of WPATH. You know, they, they wanted to assurance that you'd go through these gatekeepers and, you know, live uh, and, and present yourself a certain way for a certain period of, period of time um, before you could even have access to medical interventions. And so he recognized that those things were failures, and he worked to be better and build partnerships with, um, you know, Dr. Schmidt uh, was one of the first physicians that he worked with who was okay with doing informed consent, but she didn't really understand, like, um, she didn't know the medical aspect as well when mm-hmm. they first connected. So they worked kind of together in this kind of coordinated care. He would help supplement her medical knowledge while she was gaining familiarity, but she had the right disposition to, to mold and become that really amazing ally. So um, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's not an easy answer, Michelle, um, but he was just a great man and a great ally, and he did so much for so many of us here. You know, it seems to me, I mean, when I think of Donnell and I think of there are people, I mean, and we do have our silos, you know, and sometimes we work together and sometimes, you know, uh, it's easy to wear that label of ally. But then to me, there's also like a subculture of family, people mm-hmm. who who look at, well, who, who really get that we're humans in all our complexity and have that capacity to understand, to love to get out of the way to lift someone else up. And I think that that was what Darnell brought to the table. I mean, he was, you know, to almost to say that he was just an ally is almost like, you know, to do a disservice because he was like a family member. And mm-hmm. in our, our family, our community family, doing what's best for it. And I think that that's why he's still so revered. And like I said, when his daughter was there, there were people, and, and you could tell that she felt it too, that this wasn't mm-hmm. just, you know, a job that he did or something that he did. Mm-hmm. It was part of him living his authentic life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, so, it's something he felt was necessary. You know, he mm-hmm. felt that it was necessary to invest in this, and, you know, even when he was sick, he was tireless with this. Like, uh-huh. He still had to work full time. He, he still had to do those things. He still had his treatments. Um, but his spare time was spent focusing on how we can build this and, and what we need to do strategically and what it will take to get there. And, you know, he was just so selfless in everything that he gave. And, you know, and like you said, you were a co-founder. Okay, and after 
the loss of someone with whom you were so close. I mean, often you see one of two things happens with an organization. Either it falls apart, you know, or, or mm-hmm. there's a lot of infighting where they can't do it, or it continues to grow and become stronger, which was mm-hmm. your promise, your commitment to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of like built up to the survey. And mm-hmm. I'm going to take a break now because then I want to talk about how you – defined and did this survey, like you said, with no funding. So Mm -hmm. we will be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. Welcome back. Uh, Brayden, we were talking about transcendent binary, and you were saying that, you know, you did this survey, which, which the end result was this amazing exhibit showing the end but you did it. You didn't have funding. You didn't have all this, and during the process, you know, you lost your not only friend, mentor, brother, Darnell um, Jones, and so... Um, how did the survey come about? What were the conversations about? And how did you make this happen? Um, so it all started, um, I got connected with Darnell. So I got connected with Darnell. I started as a client in 2015. And I was, he just helped me, like, get traction in my life. And I reached out to him and said, I want to help. Like, these are the skill sets I have. I really love what you're doing. I would love to see what we can work together and do, and he just championed that. Um, uh-huh. So when we got to the table together, um, that was right around the same time. He's, he's sharing with me, like I was still kind of, I wouldn't say new to the experience, but I only had my own lived experience, right? So he's sharing uh-huh. with me like how he approaches clients and, and the things, like their, their stories, the things that they've gone through. And when you map that all together, I mean, there's a lot of complex needs and a lot of complex barriers. Um, we know that our community um, struggled in being, you know, under insurance or un- have no insurance. Um, we know that our community faced a lot of family rejection and stress. We, we knew these things. We saw these hesitations. We knew that there was issues with access to care. And we knew these things, but we wanted to learn more. We wanted to learn more about the needs of our community and the thing that came up a lot was stress, anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the survey, we looked at, so that's kind of where it started, is we wanted to learn more, and we wanted to have a more systematic, you know, with proper um, survey methods, with proper, you know, data integrity that we could really use as a platform to not only advocate on that platform, but create change on that platform. So we knew that the foundations had to be really solid. 
Sorry. Okay, <laughs> now, in, in developing the foundation and getting that information, now, we often talk about, I mean, there are, and I wouldn't even say divisions. I think that there's a level of protectionist. Like sometimes mm-hmm. there are trans women, and I say, and I've talked to some trans women, and I said, well, or people who are doing surveys and even service providers, and I say, well, what about trans men? And they, and there's some people think like, well, trans men, you know, they don't have it as bad, or trans men want to be invisible. Then there's also there's the trans, white trans community, and there's trans people mm-hmm. of color. You're trying mm-hmm. to get all this information. How did you mm-hmm. build bridges amongst these groups? Yeah, well, what we did is we had um, we had a lot of we had two main focus group testings, and we worked to have a diverse group within those focus group testings. So, um, in building the survey, um, we met with many folks from the community on more of like an individual basis, and would have them be a part of our meetings. Um, and then we had two focus group tests where um, we had diverse groups across, you know, different, different ages at which they transitioned, um, different cultural identities, different races, different um, uh, gender identities. That's obviously a very complex factor for our community. Different religious. Mm-hmm. We had folks who came from very strongly Christian backgrounds. We had folks who were Mormon. Um, and we had people just take it and give our feedback. In that first focus group test, we ended up completely scrapping it, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, we still had the same goals, but we restructured it um, based on this feedback. And then from there, the second version, we would share it with individual members. I mean, Darnell was very well connected in the community, um, so we would get a lot of feedback that way. Um, you know, he, he, by the time I was working with him, had a very diverse client base. So a lot of that was working within the folks that we had helped in some capacity. Um, so it's part, I think, of being entrenched and providing services and then the connection that that gives you. Um, I will acknowledge that there is a limitation in our survey. Um, the actual method for recruitment was online and survey-based. Um, mm-hmm. And Darnell actually had passed away just before we got the survey launched. Um, and so it was a really hard time for our organization, and we just did the best that we could and get it out there. Um, and we did like a lot of like social media advertisements, and we'd focus in uh, the Detroit area. We'd focus in a lot of different areas um, in the state, and you know, targeted based on folks who have liked or engaged with um, trans-related, um, you know, interest groups and that sort of thing. Um, so we just tried to get it off as, as best as we possibly could. Um, but we, we didn't have as, as many people of color who actually took that survey, and that okay. is a limitation. And we are honest about that and want to find ways to do better with that. Um, and that goes back to not being funded. It, that creates some of the, you know, difficulties. You know, we, we don't okay. have the ability. No one has the ability to devote to this full time. And we've had, I think, uh, in the past two years in losing Darnell, uh, we've grown a lot, and we've are doing the best that we can, and there's a lot of growth that still needs to happen, um, which is where we now have a dedicated outreach coordinator can focus on continuing to build those relationships um, and just do better in that. Well, you know, that's, that's nothing new because I know, and I'm trying to think, I mean, a while back before then, um, I had been with the Peninsula Group, and we had tried to do a statewide 
study to find out, to do like really a SWOT analysis of the LGBTQ community across it. And we found mm-hmm. also, I mean, and we had a diverse committee, I mean, group who was working on it, but like you said, mm-hmm. and we did it online, and uh, the, it wasn't really representative to the point where at one point we looked at who was responding to and recognized it. In fact, we went with laptops, like to the Ruth Ellis Center and to the Latino community mm-hmm. to, to really target and get those. We still sort of see that. I mean, I think it's better now, but you see some mm-hmm. things where you, have, where you see communities of color, particularly the trans communities of color, and mm-hmm. the rest of the trans community working more together. But like you said, sometimes are they going to respond? Are they going to do it? And there's also challenges mm-hmm. within each community. Maybe they don't have access to community. So, I mean, I, I can see where that fit, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're talking about how are you going to go back and, and mm-hmm. do that, that kind of look at it again and try to target you know, bring mm-hmm. in some more of those voices, mm-hmm. you know. So was that part of, I mean, back when you were starting to do that, did, is it something that you identified might be a problem? And, you know, and I mean, you can not only like taking race, economic backgrounds can make a difference. Yeah. Is that something that you recognized from the beginning? Like, you know, we're going to reach so many people, but there's going to be a whole lot that we're going to miss. Well, yeah, I think, I think, so there's, there's a couple things. Um, the, in, so we were building the survey in 2015, and that's when um, the National Center for Transgender um, Equality survey came out. And if you mm-hmm. look at their numbers, they actually they weighted their population. So our actual respondents in terms of percentages across um, racial demographics specifically were very similar within percentage points of the NCTE survey, um, mm. the number of people that actually responded. But what they did is, and you'd have to talk to my stats guy, but they, essentially they weighted it and projected results as if the representative, um, you know, a sample population that actually was representative of the actual U.S. population had taken it. So mm-hmm. I think you're hitting on a really good point, Michelle, is that it's hard. And even within the, the survey research world, when you're working with this type of population, you have to do a lot of snowball or friend after mm-hmm. friend and promote it mm-hmm. online. And there are challenges and, and they're, they're not necessarily new, um, but they are still there. And so, you know, we're taking it upon ourselves to push to the next level of making sure that, you know, if you follow us on, on Facebook, we, you know, we, we promote a lot of um, diversity and diverse voices within our community that's a big part. We think that's a very a critical, um, but not just for visibility, but you have to take that next step. So what we're looking at doing now is, is making sure with our outreach coordinator that we are, we're sharing our platform for other local organizations. We now have the, you know, the labor and the capacity to do that. And it's kind of like our own organization had a hierarchy of needs, and it was you know, when Darnell passed away, it was me, Darnell, um, my partner, Caitlin, who is a therapist, and Nancy was mm-hmm. just starting to help out. That's as large mm-hmm. as our team was when he passed away. So it took a lot of tremendous work to close this, the loop on the survey and rebuild our program and figure out what our processes were going to be and figure out how to make it HIPAA compliant 
and, and there was a lot of things happening at the same time. So yes, it is a limitation. We are very much aware of it, and we want to do better. And we recognize that there's work involved in that. So we have the capacity with dedicated folks to help us cross those bridges. Mm-hmm. So as you did the survey and you're starting to look at results, okay, we're starting to see younger and younger children recognize that they're, they're transgender and gender nonconforming, and they're coming out. And are, are you seeing any results that might help this younger generation that's coming out? I mean, you know, because we, we know, I mean, we, I know people from all ages, but, you know, there's so many people who are like, well, it was later in their life when they recognized that they were transgender. And even though, you know, you're in your 30s, and, you know, by some standards you're still young, I mean, I was looking, listening on something, and there was a, a 12-year-old. I mean, you know, so you're, you're an old hand at this what came out of that that you see? I mean, you know, like, you know, you're, you're an elder. <laughs> what, did you, what, what came out from that that you see that? And, I mean, even going to Ruth Ellis. I mean, I was at Ruth Ellis, mm-hmm. and I had a, a young woman who was in her 20s who talked about being concerned about the kids who were coming after her who she knew was already, you know, being stigmatized, couch mm-hmm. surfing, all these. What came out of your survey that you can see that, Maybe you need you need to tweak, or that our organizations need to be addressing for this next wave of of young people. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I feel that there's there's two things I can say to that. Um, first and foremost, looking at the numbers, there's there's a lot that um, I'll actually back up for a moment. We looked at a gender timeline, so respondents mm-hmm. were able to say. You know, this is the first time I kind of had a sense, but maybe didn't have the words. And then this is when I had the words and knew that that fit me. And then mm-hmm. there was the next milestone when I told someone, and then, if applicable, pursued medical interventions. And so we looked at, but that timeline, we broke up the folks who responded at the time of responding were 45 and older, and then those who were 45 and younger, or 44 and younger, I should say. So what we found was that there's a lot of similarities. Um, we found um, that like the, the, the median was like, or the average was like seven and five mm. for the two different groups when they first knew that something didn't really fit with their assigned gender, but maybe didn't have the words. So, um, and then when people had the words in both groups respectively, we're talking about 18 and 16 years old. But the difference is that we're now seeing that a lot of folks who took our survey that they were open to others at 20, but for the 45 and older, it may have been 45 years of age when they actually told someone. So we use that um, in, in two perspectives. One, to generate empathy for the lived experience of not being able to be authentic until, you know, a, a later stage of life. Um, but we also look at that as this is a really a pediatrics issue. And we use this when we work with not only youth, but we can work with families as well. And we leverage this when we're working with families. Um, we, we do that to validate the perspective of this youth. So that's the first part to, to answer you. Now, the second part of what we need to do and what this means in terms of action planning, well, there's a lot of 
worry about discrimination. That was really the crux of our survey, was mm -hmm. not talking about the experiences of discrimination because, yes, that is significant, but what we wanted to know is how does it affect behavior in your day-to-day -day life, how does it affect coping in your day-to-day -day life, and how much worry do you have in your day-to-day -day life about discrimination or the fear of discrimination. And um, so we learned a lot. I mean, we looked at all different aspects of life, from daily life, home life, to social gatherings. Um, we looked at school, if applicable. We worked in education. We looked at healthcare, at work. Um, and we found that the greater the worry of discrimination, it links to the greater severity of anxiety and lower reported health. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, there was an income disparity too. And it's, the question is, is why is it that way? And I would point to this worry of discrimination. And if you're worried in your home life, how are you going to perform well at school? How are you, I mean, income-wise and interviewing and having access to, you know, these opportunities to really build on your career is going to be significantly compromised. So, I think it comes down to resilience building um, across all ages, but specifically youth. And that's where it impacts our programming for moving forward. Um, that's where we want to be a part of that change when we're working individually with our community, but then on a macro level, creating awareness about this. Like this is important. Mm -hmm. um, cultural responsiveness and cultural sensitivity is important. Um, yeah, so I mean, it, it, it's complex, you know, because these are, these are systems that work against us and they're systems that affect different people differently based on their intersectional experience. Um, and the question is, is how do we build on experience while also creating, um, you know, more global change? Yeah, you know, because it's interesting as you, as you stop it, because you hear stories, like I said, I have friends all over. I have one friend who, um, who lives in California and Willie, like, he knew he was Willie at a very young age. In fact, mm -hmm. he quit being, you know, he said at a very young he quit being called anything other than Willie. And buying, mm -hmm. you know, he made sure his mom bought his boy's clothes. And now, you know, as an adult, like, with his family and his kids at, in one of the areas that he lived, that, you know, they knew he was very open and out that he was, the, you know, with his children. They had him come in and teach, you know, other parents mm -hmm. about dealing with members of the trans community. But then you can go to another place where you still have people who are like, oh, you know, I'm, I, I'm in fact, I'm someone here from Michigan who said, well, mm -hmm. at night I'm myself, but during the day it's just easier if I continue to present as, uh, you know, just, androgynous at work because mm -hmm. if I went in and really tried to to live authentically I know I'd have problems even though they've said oh well it's okay mm -hmm. so so in is there a difference here in Michigan do you find that Michigan is a little more less accepting than other places I mean you know we hear things we know about the bathroom laws and other places but um you know, I know we're not California, nor are we, you know, New York. Mm -hmm. But is Michigan a tough nut to crack here to be uh, gender nonconforming? I, I mean, I think, it, I think it's difficult. I think it's – I don't think that we've had enough, um, you know, we're starting to get visibility, which is positive. 
but I think there can, needs to be more and outside of just the general scope of like, hey, this is a trans experience, but like us presented when it's normalized, when it's just, you know, uh, an actor, you know, who's, who's not, the plot doesn't really involve them being trans, they just uh-huh. happen to be trans, right? Um, I think uh-huh. those things can really help. As far as, you know, Michigan, uh, comparatively, um, I, th- I think it's hard everywhere. I don't think uh-huh. there's many easier places. I do know that the Ferndale area, there's pockets in Michigan that are that are really amazing and, and awesome. But, I mean, the, the fear is, is, and the worry about anxiety is, is pervasive. Um, uh-huh. Our survey was not bound to Michigan. So um, we found that there was worry everywhere. It, it didn't seem uh-huh. like we looked at, like, you know, the zip codes and whether it was rural or not. And we, we didn't find many differences. We felt that, um, you know, in terms of what was statistically significant, um, it, across the board, it was, it was very similar. So I think it's, uh-huh. I think it's hard uh, everywhere uh-huh. because I don't think, you know, HR policies are just starting to come around. And like you said, there's a difference between, you know, a policy and a practice. And I think that causes a lot of, you know, anxiety. And, you know, in terms of proving discrimination, you have to have resources and access to be able to follow that. And then the other thing that I think makes it really difficult is you had to be really on point with the performance in your job. And we know Mm -hmm. that this anxiety and the stress has an impact on people's Mm -hmm. day-to-day. And carrying that mental burden and tax it may impact you in other ways. And the needing to be perfect so that way, you know, if you were to be fired for being trans, but they're going to cloak it and say, well, it was really this thing right here and this thing right here, you know, that's the big burden to kind of carry. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not sure if that fully answers it, but I think that... Well, oh, yeah. I know, I, I, you know, um, a long time ago, I often tell people I had a friend and we were sitting in Ferndale and we were having this conversation about being judged just on who you are and how you look. And she was like, you know, I don't think if you understand, she said, no, actually you probably do understand because, I mean, to be, that's discrimination. Discrimination is discrimination. And it's just as bad if you're trans or if when you're black and you know that you always have to be mm-hmm. at the top of your game. I mean, I've mm-hmm. had people who have gone to great colleges and universities, but they've said, you know, I can't have an off day. And it's the same mm-hmm. thing that if, if you're trans, you have to walk in there and you, like you said, you have to be at the top of your field if mm-hmm. you're going to do it. And the people I know who have made a smooth transition, no issues, like they were already like, like maybe they were a lawyer, they were something. So it was easy. They had money, they had access to doing it. But mm-hmm. if you're going in on the plant, that you know, suddenly it's like there's these challenges. Right. How did you determine... And- I was just going to say that's a really good point because, um, you know, how, many ac- how much access and resources you have. Like it's different between if your experience is I have this job because I need a job and if I were to lose this mm-hmm. job, I can't pay rent that's due in 10, 15 days. So I have to endure this or I have to. It's like a hierarchy of needs and there's a level of survival. Like it, I, I can't come out or I feel like I can't come out because it's not worth the risk because I need to survive versus someone who can go, you know what, I've got this long history of experience. I feel that I'm going to be able to pull this off. I've got a little bit of buffer. I've got some flexibility. If they, if they don't accept me, well, then I'll find somewhere else. And if they discriminate against me, I have resources. I, I know that I have that mental buffer. That's a completely different lived experience. So I really want mm-hmm. to hit on that because I think what you said is really important. 
it really depends on where you are in that because mm-hmm. I have a very good friend who is like nationally known as an activist for the for the trans community but also for the LGBT community and he was telling me like when he was in Missouri and he started to transition even though you know he was a professor you know he was teaching suddenly there was an issue and you know and mm. and how how it means you know and and to get out of that area because there are all these different things that happen like I said it, it's where you are and mm-hmm. to really look at it and to talk about not only class economics race and where we are and to suddenly have to go back and prove that all the stuff that you knew before you transitioned, you still know you're still as good as. So how did you decide to present the survey results in the form that you did at at Affirmations? Um, Well, it was a very comprehensive data set, and we didn't want it to have an academic feel. That was the most Mm -hmm. important. Um, We knew that we would pursue having this published, but we didn't even think about that um, until we brought it back to the community first. And we started by creating, we had a report that was created and it's on our website um, that is, you know, hasn't been published in a specific academic journal, but it was just bringing the results back to our community. And then this exhibit was really important to us as well. And we wanted it to have a voice all the way through we wanted it to build on itself, kind of, and tell a story almost. Um, and we wanted to make it, you know, as, as accessible um, as as we could, um, in in trying to pick and choose. And this was the hardest part: is, you know, if you if you have big tables, <laughs> it tells a story, uh-huh. but it's gonna read differently to you know someone who looks at that every single day. And I wouldn't even, I don't fit in that category. <laughs> I would have fatigue uh-huh. reading like, you know, three panels of that, right? So we had to really kind of skim it down to the main key messages. And this was an insanely collaborative method. We had our core research team, and we had comps people, and we had designers, and our research team would go through and go, this is what we want to say and this is how we want to say it, and this is the concept. And we'd spend hours trying to get it to this place where we thought it would be good, almost from a marketing standpoint, and then we'd have our comms team look at it and go, yeah, this needs to be better. (laughs) So we had a lot of different perspectives at play. We had community members. We had pharmacists. We had um, uh, social work and therapists and many community members, but then also people who have a background in journalism and creating, you know, uh, creating conversations through writing um, that makes something impactful at a glance. You know, we wanted it to be easy and engaging for people. So that was kind of the process that we followed, and we wanted to keep it from the voice of the community because this was community-led and driven. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, we wanted to, you know, it doesn't, res- doesn't show all of the results, but it shows the ones that we thought would bring change with allies, and we also included the results that through our focus group testing community members wanted to know about, um, and we, we brought results out that we would think that if parents were to read it, that it would have a positive impact on them and the choice to, you know, support their child. Um, we wanted an, a broad audience from whether it was a school administrator or a health 
practitioner to look at that and recognize the importance for reflecting on their own practices um, with those that they serve. And those were a lot of the key objectives that we mm-hmm. had in figuring out how to disseminate and tell this story through artwork. Um, and the designer, I mean, he's amazing. Dan Hurley, um, he's a community member and is the creative director for our team. So that's his artwork. And then we had, you know, messages from the community through the portraiture. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was really important for us to do that. So what kind of feedback did you get? I mean, I noticed that it seemed like I saw people like making a loop, a couple of laps around, you know, <laughs> looking at one or stopping and looking at something, and then maybe you'd see them go look at that, and then you'd see them come back to another panel, and it was like they were looking, they were reading, and then there were people who were sitting and talking. And so it sort of it seemed like an, it was more than just sort of like walk through and look or pick up some pamphlets. It really seemed to be like people were experiencing something. What kind of feedback did you get during, like especially the day of the opening, but then as time went by, what type of, uh, you know, because I know it was there for several months, a couple months, what, did you, what kind of feedback did you get back? Well, it was really positive. Um, we got a lot of mm. positive comments on, um, you know, we had interactive elements, uh, so people could actually, you know, we, we asked people to, to tell a story, um, uh, a gender journey story, and mm. we had, like, sliders that focused on, like, the different milestones of, like, new, told someone, and, and medical intervention if applicable. And, um, you know, we, we had instructions, and we were like, hey, tell a story of someone who knew right around this age and transitioned on the earlier side, and then, you know, create another story of someone who knew at the same age but didn't transition until 45 or 50. And we asked people, you know, what experience was gained and what experience was lost? And then we asked people to do their own slide story and think about what they would do and what would be some of the barriers and what would be some of the challenges and what would be some of the things they'd have to work through in order to live that authentically on their timeline. And, you know, this was at a part of the survey, or I shouldn't say survey, but the, you know, progression of information they've already focused now on social systems of support and discrimination and coping. Um, so they had already like the full gamut of, of background to, to think about these things based on integrating what they just learned. Um, so we got a lot of really positive feedback on that being very powerful to allies. Um, we got a lot of positive feedback from, we had um, healthcare, uh, we had a healthcare mm-hmm. clinic come through and tour um, that, you know, it started conversation. They were going, you know, what do we need to do? Or with a group of pharmacists, they were thinking, like, what do we need to change in our curriculum? Like, this is important. Like, we came to this knowing it was important, but walking through this, we know it's now mission critical. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it promoted change um, and understanding of its importance of change and, and, and think about these things and affirming practices and if you're being inclusive and all of that. So that was really positive. And then, you know, we had a community conversation at the very end of it. And, you know, the feedback that we got there was really positive as well. People recognized that, you know, they weren't alone. Um, it made them think a little bit more about how they coped, whether active or passive coping um, strategies. Um, 
Yeah, so that was some of the feedback that we received. That's great. Well, Brayden, we're going to take our second break here, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what's going on today. So we will be right back. You're listening to Collections by Michelle Brown. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. We're back here with Braden Michaud. Braden, I mean, we have gone through some things. I can recall when there was the uproar, um, which we still don't have an end of, but, I mean, but back in the day, and in fact, I mean, and that was a while before, and, you know, and we thought we were making progress as far as making sure that the T was included. And then mm-hmm. the right of trans people under the bus and said, you know, well, on end, if we can get into, they can wait, you know. And it, and it was like, what, you know? I mean, we've come a ways. I mean, we really have come a ways. I mean, I can recall when uh, they were building the new affirmations building where your offices are, when Rachel Crandall was passing out uh, petitions to make sure that they not just that, well, trans people are welcome here, but that transgender people were included in there. Then we went through a presidency to where not only did we get marriage, but that acknowledged LGBTQ people, I mean, had them there at the White House, lifted us up, and then we had 2016. And, you mm-hmm. know, and from then on, I mean, and even before then, we've, we've seen the bathroom laws, you know, and it's going backwards to this recent announcement that, that supposedly leaked from HHS about them wanting to go down to two genders. Mm-hmm. It seems like to me more than ever, the work of your study, um, that exhibit that you did to have people see there is mm-hmm. more important than ever. But mm-hmm. first of all, as a trans person to have someone sort of, basically say that you you don't exist, you know, uh, that there's something wrong with you. I mean, how have, have you been, how has it personally impacted you to see not only that all this hatred and then to have uh, someone who's supposed to represent the country want to do this policy? And, and how has it affected the work of trans and the binary? Those are great questions. Um, this is a really difficult time. Uh, I think that it's it's easy to feel a lot of activist burnout in these times uh, because uh. when this happens on a national level, I know for me personally, 
it reminds me I was in high school with Bush and being politicized mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, same-sex marriage, equality and everything like that. Um, and, you know, I know as a youth being vulnerable to that, how impactful that is because it basically gives national credence and legitimacy to those who invalidate you. And you know that, that those are people in your day-to-day around you. And then you're uncertain about the future of your government and what rights you will or won't have. And if you will be considered, you know, lesser formally by uh-huh. your government, um, that's, those are challenging things. I think that even if we didn't have this administration, it would be still very challenging just in where we are socially. And, and we really need to focus on, you know, the equal access. And there's a lot of implicit bias and there's intersections of implicit bias and that impacts us and our income. Um, I think it's really important, Michelle, to note that our survey, the field of our survey was done before this current administration. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think that's really important because before Trump, we still had severe anxiety. It was like 30% of our population had severe anxiety, 23% had moderate. And comparing to that, the U.S. population, 18% of the U.S. population has anxiety. That's including minimal, mild, moderate, and severe. All add up to 18%. And that's before this administration. So mm-hmm. I know that this stress and anxiety for me is pervasive because I, the, for me in the past, thinking about in high school, um, you know, the saving grace was the Supreme Court. That mm-hmm. they will... Yeah that will take it up, they will find it, it will, it will, what needs to happen will happen. And I think that this culminative intention that we're seeing from this current administration, I think it threatens the security of our futures from that perspective. Um, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about if this were to be taken up to review, you know, essentially to review, you know, the, the interpretation of Title IX and Title VII in terms of, you know, discrimination protection on the basis of sex. I mean, that's what the Department of Justice uh, Justice seems like they're trying to kind of tap into by erasing the concept of gender and saying sex is an immutable conditioning characteristic. It seems that they're trying to set the tone for that type of interpretation, which would basically say, um, you know, you, you don't have any civil right protection against discrimination. And it validates discrimination um, Mm -hmm. and and withholding access to basic needs like jobs, getting health care, things like that. Um, So I think that it's really hard. It's a big weight. And Mm -hmm. that deeply impacted me in this past week. It's a huge Mm -hmm. mental energy tax. Um, It gets in the way of your job. Uh, Mm -hmm. It gets in the way. It it really just kind of hijacks where you're at and thinking about what we need to do collectively together to try to solve this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like in some ways it makes you feel like, I don't know, like the country is schizophrenic. I mean, you know, I mean, cause you see yeah. like things happen in one way. I mean, cause even back to the point when they were going through all of this stuff about the bathroom, the bathroom laws, like I have friends in North Carolina, and I mean, there was a clergy coalition who came up and was like, you know, really, this is just crazy, you know, and, and you've seen us push back on it. And then you see at one point uh, people like Andrea Jenkins 
who getting elected in Minneapolis and, you know, and not, you know, and moving up and being like, and so many other trans activists who got elected and doing that. But then you mm-hmm. have an administration who's doing this and it's sort of like, so on one level, some people are accepting and understanding mm-hmm. and recognizing that we are bigger than our genitals, okay? I mean, mm-hmm. that, that who we are is from our, our spirit, our soul, who we are, and we mm-hmm. know who we are and that there's a value in it. And then this is coming out from the other part. And then you have people, I mean, you know, I mean, I guess that's the whole thing, people who, and I think that's the important part of, of, of not only our community being out, but demanding mm-hmm. that our allies be out to sort of say, you know, yes. to stand up against this because this is just like, how can this, how can this happen? You know, that's what you keep saying. Mm-hmm. You know, I keep seeing this. I see people. I know people. I know families. I know who are, are just going to be disrupted by this. Mm-hmm. And why aren't we, why aren't people marching in the streets about this? I mean, it's, it's just like crazy to me. It's insane. I think that it's interesting because so I, I, in my undergrad degree is in political theory. Um, so I think a lot about, you know, the structure of things and the spirit of things. And, uh, you know, democracy is really interesting because, you know, you have one voice, right, one voice to vote, but there's a lot of alienation that can happen because especially as a trans person, even voting, you know, for the party that is more likely to represent and support you, your interests may still not be fully uh-huh. what it should be, right? So there's this disenfranchisement. And I think that within the community can turn into a kind of like, well, it doesn't really matter if I vote. And even if I did vote, they're not really going to represent me. (laughs) And I think that's the disenfranchisement. And Uh so it's important that we have these people elected because now we will have folks within the PGNC community at the table as peers and at the table making decisions about policies that will impact us. And that's a really huge success. So there's a lot of hope that we should continue to focus on, but there's also a lot of uncertainty too, and I think that's part of privilege. Privilege is people in this time who can go, you know what, I see that you're concerned, but you know what, just don't let it affect you. It'll be okay. And Mm -hmm. that's fundamentally flawed because democracy requires participation. And democracy requires participation in between elections. And I, I, I know a lot of people in, in, in my past before transitioning and that, that sort of thing, I know a lot of people who were more conservative on the financial aspect, and that's where they would vote a lot, um, versus, you know, they, they were okay with me as a person, um, but they voted to their own self-interest. And, and I think the, there's a lot of problems with that because – even if that, that person represents you more, well, as them representing you, why are you not calling in and reining in that representative saying, hey, I elected you, and this is not what I'm in favor of? That would also change the character of the party in power as well, right? So uh-huh. the problem is, is that allies have privilege where they get the opportunity to vote on the thing that they think is going to in- economically enhance their situation and at the end of the day, <laughs> what's the game? You know, how much more money are you going to have? And, and, and then the other thing, too, is like maybe these things won't pan out in a negative way. Maybe it'll work out. Maybe this is the implosion that we need to go through to kind of wake the country up 
to really focus at the bigger problems at hand here. Um, but, but if that's the case, um, you know, it, it, it's challenging because we need them to, like I said, rein in the representatives. You know, because even when you stop and you, I mean, because, and you know, you're preaching to the choir to me, but you know, I have talked to people <laughs> who have talked about and the and, uh, economic part and it's good for business. And then when you want to tell them, when you have someone who could be, who's really qualified, either they're living with this anxiety or they're concerned about being outed at their job or they can't live authentically at their job or mm-hmm. they're afraid that, you know, I knew someone who it wasn't until they unfortunately passed away at their funeral that people came and they were like, wow, had we known that they were trans, it wouldn't have mattered to them. But this person mm-hmm. has spent all their work days being in fear and probably not being as productive as they could. So, I mean, if you want to yeah. talk about business, don't you want everyone yeah. to be functioning business? So it's a, like discrimination does not help business. I don't care what your bottom line is if you don't have mm-hmm. people who are fully functioning. And so it's like on so many levels that, that, you know, that's why I also say that people need to be out because we need to be challenging them when they yeah. say that, you know, when they yeah. say that. You know, people who are talking about who's going in the bathroom, and I want to say, well, what about all those priests up in, you know, in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, you know? I mean, <laughs> exactly. yeah, I mean so that was, that was harming more than, and, than worrying about who might go into a bathroom, which doesn't happen. And so it's sort of like maybe we do need to, maybe it just needs to be so outrageous yeah. that it will wake them up. But also we still have members in the gay community who need to take a stand on trans issues. And yeah. I noticed like, like um, when there was the rally against um, about being erased at um, Ruth Ellis, we have members, mm-hmm. representatives of every organization, I mean, well, or most of the organizations in Southeast Michigan who were there, not only trans organizations. How important is it that our national and statewide and local organizations stand up and say, you know, it isn't the T sometimes, it's the T all the time. You know, it's gender nonconforming all the time, and we stand together mission critical um that solidarity Mm -hmm. is what can because that's the thing when you're a minority right like you don't have your voice isn't as heard when it comes to really you know speaking to your representatives or just in the social climate so you need people who not just understand that something is wrong but they're willing to do something and i think that's important for a movement to be successful and impactful and and have the the kind of power behind it that it needs to really demand, um, you know, that the majority recognize the legitimacy and really push for that social change. But I think there's another element, too, that's really important, Michelle, is that all those other organizations, um, be it be like refuge for, for immigrants or whatnot, or, uh-huh. you know, folks of color or, you know, religious backgrounds, whatever the fact may be that those, uh, those groups exist to support people, there are intersections of our own community that are seeking those services, that would benefit from those services. So trans inclusion and gender nonconforming inclusion needs to be everywhere because it's not just a, oh, you're in an LGB space or an LGBT space, so this is our protocols here. It's like, no, we're, 
we're needing access to services everywhere. Um, I think that's where a lot of people can feel alienated. In, in their own, at one intersection of their identity, they're alienated, and then in another, they're uniquely alienated as well. And it's like advocating for this is really important. And I think the best way that an organization can do that is speaking up at moments like this and setting the tone for what they support and putting action behind it and generating visibility and having that solidarity. I think that's very critical. How do you find, you know, and, and what role does trans in the binary, do you see that, you know, allies can open the door, but sometimes they need to get out of the way to let you, you know, like present the information that you find from, come from life experience, come from these conversations that you're having with people. Yeah. Not only in organizations, but politically, are you finding that particularly now that, you know, every other day you might have, if you have 10 emails, nine of them are from someone wanting, wanting your vote or your, and or your money, are, you, <laughs> are, are, you know, are they pushing that agenda? Because, you know, we have, we have our voters' guides and everything, but in, as they are getting that recognition saying, like, this is the person we're supporting that by our mainstream, you know, mm -hmm. gay ink. Are they? Are you finding that they're opening the door to where organizations like Transgender Binary, GNA, Transgender Michigan, where you are actually there helping to determine the questions or seeing where from your research base that mm -hmm. these candidates are talking about or at least aware of the real issues? Yeah, I know that a couple of the candidates for governor had focused on that. I, I don't think they're, at least in, in my experience um, with Transcend, we haven't been too politically active in educating politicians, but we're getting into a position where I think that, I mean, the best answer to your question, Michelle, is that there are voting guides, and it's like it comes down uh -huh. to who's most likely going to represent your wishes. But I think the plea that I make to these organizations, the, the larger, more mainstream ones that you're mentioning, like the progressive voter guides and that sort of thing, uh -huh. is if they're making this endorsement or they're supporting this um, you know, potential representative, if successful and elected, well, we need to participate after the election uh -huh. because that's when we need to not just make our voice heard to capture a demographic to help get the vote you need for your interests to be served, but we need everyone who voted. We need solidarity and participation after the election. So for me, that's where I think it's really critical. Um, and that's something that Transcend can be more of a part of because it doesn't have the political aspect, but it's more of the educating, you know, potential representatives and, and legislatures and, you know, offering our research findings as ways to inform these types of discussions. And I think that's the role that Transcend could play moving forward in, in 2019, and we definitely have built that foundation to do so. Um, but I think it goes back to participation. I can't, I can't echo that enough in that, you know, to be an ally, you have to, it's a verb, and you have to speak uh -huh. up, and you have to speak when other people won't be heard. And when it comes to representatives, we don't have the voice of numbers. That's the nature mm -hmm. of being a minority. But if you have solidarity and you participate, not just when things affect you, but call your representatives, write your representatives when things don't affect you, but they affect someone you care about 
or it aligns with it doesn't align with your core values those are important moments too and i think that can create a lot of progress you know i th- i often think that i think that our part of what our work too is to do is to have those over the fence those kitchen table those at work conversations and you mm-hmm. know and i don't expect everyone to know everything about being gay, being trans, being gender nonconforming, but to educate and not only educate, but inspire and empower, like you said, our allies. Our allies mm-hmm. can be our coworker, our family members, our friends, mm-hmm. or the people who just see us walk, so that when mm-hmm. someone says, you know, I'm concerned about those bathrooms that say that for everything, everyone, that, you know, there'll be some man in a dress trying to molest my little girl that they'll say, you know what, you know, most of the child molesters are straight white men, you know, and so let's, let's mm-hmm. not get it twisted, even if they just say that, you know, so to me it's a way that that's so important that through education, inspiring, motivating, and empowering our circle mm-hmm. so that we have all these voices sort of, pushing back because then that exactly. next time when, when you have a Mike Pence or someone can roll in and say something that's just outrageous, they're going to say, you know, I might not have, have a trans friend, but I know this. Yeah, because when, when it happens on the national sphere like that, when it's a you know, government elected official who's saying these things or proposing these policies, it really emboldens invalidation. And in turn, we as a minority understand that. And so we anticipate it more. We anticipate the invalidation more. Um, so I think it's really important to, yeah, communicate with your representatives, but also in your day-to-day. I mean, telling uh-huh. people, hey, you know what, that's still not okay. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you said it's still not okay. <laughs> Despite this administration, that's still not okay thing to say. So, you know, one of the things, that, that at the rally they were asking our allies to say, we see you and we will fight for you. But mm-hmm. on the other side, I know these are scary times. I have had, mm-hmm. I had a, a friend who is a gay man who lives out in an affluent suburb who said that he's scared. <laughs> now, I mean, so, you know, these are scary times. I mean, these are scary times, even if you, if you and I would say also that he's very passable. If he didn't, if you didn't know, you wouldn't know. I mean, so he could just be good. Mm-hmm. But it, and, and it's because these are scary times, it is easy to sort of say, well, I'm going to go back in the closet. I'm going to try to be more passable. I'm just not going to say anything. How would you say that allies can be supportive of trans and gender nonconforming individuals to help them live authentically and to know but they've got support. Um, well, I think that, you know, like let's say it's a scenario where you may not know this person very closely. And one thing that we really advocate for is just like if you are, if you're the one with the privilege and the other person is the one who has to kind of gauge like that hypervigilance of can I be who I am? Can I not be who I am? What social repercussions will happen? What, what potential harassment and physical repercussions may happen. I mean, those are calculations of safety, right? So mm-hmm. as allies, if you can let people know your allies and affirm, and you don't have to say, hey, I see you, because like you said, maybe that person 
because that's a really important thing with the trans community, right? Like, we may not be out, we still may be living authentically, but our disclosure is for us to determine, right? So uh-huh. um, if you see someone you don't really know, it's not really helpful to say, hey, like, I, I, I'm cool with trans people. Hey, hey I support you. Yeah, it's yeah. better to say, uh-huh. hey, find a way to bring it up in the conversation and just say, that's bullshit. People should live their life, right? Uh-huh. So I think that's important. And then when it is your, your friends and people that you know more intimately, I mean, there's an element of people have to decide their safety level and that's something that's part of being um, an expert of your own needs. People know what they need to do to survive, but helping them get into situations where they can, you know, the survival doesn't put them in such a visibly unsafe situation and working on, you know, whether it's access to social services or whether, um, you know, access to needs being met, whatever the fact may be, really trying to figure out how to create a better community space, um, a safer space in the workplace, um, you know, supporting these people, being there for these people, and standing up and voting. I mean, all of these things kind of, they're all really important. And, you know, it's something that we haven't touched on, but what I also tell people, no one should be attacked, killed, or hurt for being their authentic selves. And if you're driving down the street and you mm-hmm. see someone being attacked and assaulted, you don't have to know what their line of work is. You don't know how to know what they're doing. But you have a, a responsibility to support them, To even if it's to pull up and say, are you all right, sis, or what's going on, you know. Yes something by, by that level of involvement, no, you don't have to call 911 because you know often if it's a trans woman, mm-hmm. particularly of color, she will again be victimized by the police mm-hmm. department. But if you are in your house and you know and you hear it, to turn that porch light on and stand out there and say, are you all right, sis? Mm-hmm. And just stop the violence, you know, because no one, I mean, the fact that some people will go like, well, maybe if they weren't dressed that way. I mean, we have to stop demand that people start getting being misgendered when they're murdered, demand that our media call doesn't misgender people, that people have respect in life and mm-hmm. in death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I think that that's it, because there are people who are like, well, if only, no. And, you know, don't stop traumatizing them. We're coming up on... A transgender day of remembrance is coming up and mm-hmm. I was talking to uh, a woman of color who said you know it's like for her it was like again re-traumatizing her to go to one of these ceremonies and to hear these names of people who are being mm-hmm. killed and knowing that nine times out of ten the next day you were going to pick up the paper and see another trans woman had been murdered or a trans man had been attacked or murdered. How mm-hmm. do, how would you like to see trans day of remembrance change from one to where we were lamenting death to being something more empowering for the community? I like the concept of trans day of resilience We acknowledge the real problems, but also can have more of an action-oriented focus. I think there's a lot of internal resilience skills, and I think that 
This goes back to allies. I think allies have a, a due diligence to help advocate for changes in, in creating, you know, I guess the landscape of safety. Um, you know, because that, that in itself is a, is a privilege to be able to be visible and to be safe um, or choose to not be visible. All of those things are elements of, of privilege and, and that doesn't affect everyone in the community the same. And so as far as the actual needs, you know, I don't want to speak too far out of turn, but I would definitely, I would be in more of an ally in that space. And I uh -huh. would want to make sure that whatever it is that could help folks have access to services, um, whatever it would help folks to, you know, help them feel more safe and be more safe. I think that there's a lot of conversations that need to happen that involve these folks that are disproportionately affected. Um, you know, trans women of color, um, mm -hmm. a very different lived experience than, than what I have. So I think that what I would like to see is, um, you know, communication started and conversation started where folks that are affected by these very real problems can be a part of guiding where we need to go. I think that's really important. And from what I can see with my work with Transcend, what I can speak to the best would be building resiliency skills, but that's only what an individual can do. That's a, that's a micro level. And we exist within a culture, and we exist within, you know, things that disproportionately affect different folks in, in you know, different people are at different risks. So there's a, a due diligence for allies to champion this and say, this is not right and we need to create better safety because I can't even imagine how traumatizing that is, uh -huh. right, and how uh -huh. disheartening and disempowering that may be. And I think we just need to have, com obviously conversations don't solve it, but I think that that can it, it, there needs to be an examination. There needs to be a lens to this very important issue. Uh -huh. Well, Braden, we're coming close to the end of our time here together. What's next? What's going on with um, Transcend the Binary, and how can people get in touch with um, if they need the services to support or just to stay up on what's going on? Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, well, we have an active Facebook page. Um, it's a Transcend the Binary is the name of the page. Um, you can subscribe to newsletters. We have a website, transcendthebinary.org. Um, as far as things that we have coming up, we are working this weekend um, to have a kind of a, a voter guide together uh -huh. um, so we can offer some support as it's coming up to this election and kind of reaffirming the folks that we work with in our, our broader community of their rights and what to do should they face any harassment. Um, we have a lot of uh, CE courses for pharmacists. We've got another one coming up in um, Grand Rapids. Um, we have a presentation coming up with the Institute of Social Research at the University of Michigan coming up in November. Um, people will have the opportunity to see some of the survey and, and the panels that we referenced today of the exhibit. Um, OU has requested us to come on site there to kind of yeah. educate allies about some of the issues that we face as a community. Um, so folks could follow us on these different channels and get information on that and check out the exhibit. Um, and then as far as our services, we're, now that we've completed the exhibit, we're looking at what does this mean for our programming and how do we build on our services 
to focus on empowering and essentially enhancing the resilience of those we serve. Mm-hmm. And is there a website and, and or phone number? Yeah, we have transcendthebinary.org as our website, um, and then we have all of our contact information listed on there. Okay. Well, Brayden, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing um, and for sharing your, your personal feelings about Darnell. I mean, like I said, he's still really revered, and he's touched so many of us. I want to thank you for your time today, and I look forward to seeing you and working with you more in the future. Absolutely. Thank you, Michelle. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show, and thank you for your time. I want to thank today's guest, Braden Asher Mishowick, co-founder and executive director of Transcend the Binary. Transcend the Binary is an organization that seeks to empower the transgender and gender non-conforming community through access to affirming care, resources, research, and education. You can learn more about the organization at their website, transcendthebinary.org. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.